We are now in week four of our series, What's Love Got to Do With It? Which is the question that the Corinthians needed to hear as they were caught up in all of these other uh, gifts and other things that they had, uh, and yet there was a lack of love in this congregation. And so Paul writes an entire chapter, he writes all of 1 Corinthians 13 to tell them about love, to describe the character of love. And I will read the entire chapter, but this morning we will focus on verse 3 in particular. This is the Word of God. You'll find it on the screens as well. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, And if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient. Love is kind. It does not envy. It does not boast. It is not proud. It does not dishonor others. It is not self-seeking. It is not easily angered. It keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Let's pray. Lord, the greatest is love. And the measure of love, the definition of love, is that one would lay down his life for others, as Jesus has done for us. This is how we know what love is, that Jesus Christ laid down his life for us, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Father, that is the personification of love that we have seen through your son. And Lord, we pray that as we are filled with this hope of the gospel, this power of the gospel in our own lives, that love would overflow into us, that the character of love described in 1 Corinthians 13, would define our lives as well. Lord, we are not sufficient to do this, but you are, so we pray that your Holy Spirit now would be our teacher and that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight. O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. How does an orphan son of a prostitute and a Scotsman dropped in the middle of a forgotten spot in the Caribbean by providence, impoverished in squalor, 
grow up to be a hero and a scholar. The $10 founding father without a father got a lot farther by working a lot harder, by being a lot smarter, by being a self-starter. By 14, they placed him in charge of a trading charter. Oh, Alexander Hamilton, when America sings for you, will they know what you overcame? Will they know you rewrote the game? The world will never be the same. Don't worry, I know the talent show was on Friday. I know today's Sunday, all right? We got that down. In case you don't know, those are lyrics from the Broadway hit Hamilton. And Alexander Hamilton certainly left a legacy upon our country. In case you don't know, I find this fascinating. Uh, The Treasury Department is redesigning some bills. They're redesigning the $5 bill, the $10 bill, and the $20 bill. And the plan was to take Hamilton's visage off of the $10 bill. That's where Alexander Hamilton currently is. And largely because of this Broadway play, Hamilton's not going anywhere. He's staying right there on the $10 bill. And the question that we have before us today, that Paul puts before us in verse 3, is this. How do we live our lives in such a way so that our lives or the impact of our lives outlive us? How do we gain something that will last? If you look at someone like Alexander Alexander Hamilton, the impact of his life has far exceeded his life. And in fact, he's probably more well-known now than he ever has been in the history of America. How do we live our lives in such a way so as to leave a legacy behind us? How do we gain something that will last That's the question Paul puts in front of us as we come to verse 3 of chapter 13 where Paul says this, If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast but do not have love, I gain nothing. Now, first of all, a textual question. Some of you, like me, you grew up with the NIV 1984 and you grew up hearing, um, If I give away all I have and and I surrender my body to be burned... And so you say, okay, but this is a different translation from what I'm used to hearing if I surrender my body to hardship. And um, for those of you who are curious, let's talk about it after service. We talk about what the Greek means and all that. But I'll just say this. I think the NIV 2011 gets it right. I think this is the best translation um, from the Greek. If I give my body to hardship that I may boast. In other words, Paul is saying, um, even if I give away everything that I have, and even if I suffer... And all of you can see, wow, look how much he's suffering for Jesus. But I do not have love. It doesn't amount to anything. Three points this morning. First of all, sacrificial giving and living. Doing the right thing for the wrong reasons. And finally, leaving a legacy. Sacrificial giving and living. Doing the right things for the wrong reasons. And finally, leaving a legacy. First of all, sacrificial giving and living. This is the first thing we should know as we come to this this text. We say, well, isn't the point, pastor, of the Christian life to live a life where we sacrificially give of our resources and of ourselves? And I would say absolutely amen, yes. That is the point of the Christian life. We see that all over the Bible. Uh, In Luke 9, Jesus says this, if any man would follow me, Let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Jesus is saying, look, you've got to deny yourself. That is the point. If you're going to be a follower of me, yes, real sacrifice is involved. 
And in one of the most beautiful verses of the whole Bible, I would say Micah 6.8, what a summary of what life is about. What does the Lord require of you? To do justice and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. So you say, but Paul, you're saying that um, if I give away all that I have and I even undergo physical maybe torture, maybe even martyrdom, which is, which is what the first translation that all of us grew up learning is implying. You're saying that uh, if, if I don't have love, that that's nothing. Isn't that the whole point of the Christian life, to sacrificially give? And the answer to that is, well, yes, that is the point. To be a Christian means that we really surrender our lives, our desires, our passions, everything we have to Jesus, and we are called to live sacrificial lives in our giving and in our living. But Paul wants us to know this. He wants us to know that it is possible to give and to live sacrificially in a way that is completely devoid of love. It's possible. In other words, let me rephrase the question for us. It's possible to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. Now, kids, um, I don't know if you've heard this from your parents, but it's good for for us adults too. It is possible to do the right thing to make the right choice, but to do it for the wrong reasons. And um, we have this question before us. If, if I do the right thing, but I do it for the wrong reasons, is that still sinful? I mean, isn't all that matters that I do the right thing at the end of the day? Well, maybe, maybe, maybe the motives aren't perfect, but hey, look, at the end of the day, as long as I do the right thing, isn't that what really matters? And this is the truth. The truth is that doing the right thing for the wrong reasons is still sinful. It is still sinful to do the right thing for the wrong reasons. Now, that's not an excuse for saying, well, look, my my motives are never going to be perfectly pure, so basically now I can do whatever I want. We we know better than that. But let's hold ourselves to the standard that the Bible holds us to, which is not simply the, the end but rather the whole process. The Bible says more than just do externally do the right thing. That was the attitude of the Pharisees. Well, look, look at our lives. We're squeaky clean. Everything looks good. Of course, that wasn't true, but that's how it looked from the outside. But the scriptures make it clear that to do the right thing for the wrong reasons is still sinful. You see, our goal, brothers and sisters, it's not simply to do the right thing. Our goal in every situation that we find ourselves in is to do the right thing for the right reasons. In other words, to have a heart that wants to please God. What is our goal? Our goal is to have our motives and our actions in alignment with one another so that our heart and the expression of our hearts are in alignment. Um, first Sam, second Samuel uh, uh, 16.7 says this. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord, I guess 1 Samuel, but the Lord looks at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. In other words, God already sees, whenever you and I make any decision, whenever we say anything, whenever we do anything, whenever we, uh, any action that we have, any choice that we choose to make, or any choice that we choose to not make, God already sees it. God knows it. God knows every bit of our motivation. He knows every bit of our heart. 
And God's desire for us in Jesus Christ is that our actions and our motives would be in alignment, that we would do the right thing for the right reasons. Well, what are some of the reasons that our, our motives and our, and our actions are not always in alignment? Why do we do the right things for the wrong reasons? And there's a lot of different areas we could go here with this question, but let me present a few and tell me if you can relate to any of these. I know I can't. Why do we do the right things for the wrong reasons? Here's one, fear of consequences. One of the, one of the reasons is we say, look, um, maybe I would do this sin, maybe I would do this, this thing I know I shouldn't do, but what's holding me back is getting caught. I don't want the punishment. It could be, it could be uh, getting caught by a spouse. It could be getting caught at work. Or, or it could even be something that is illegal. But for whatever reason, you're held back from doing it. Fear of consequences. Another one is um, fear of, of people. We lack the ability to say no. Fear of man. Can you relate to this at all? Um, someone asked you to do something. And you're already committed five other ways. Or God has led your heart in another area. And yet we say, well, surely God doesn't ever want me to say no. When the truth is, we all know, if you have any, any experience working with kids at all, oftentimes the most loving thing you can say to a child in the right way, not out of anger, but is to say no. It's to say, actually, this isn't what's best for you. Um, you know, if my kids, particularly my second son... If he had his way, he would live off, you know, sugary cereals and candy all the time, right? And, and I don't think at, at any point I, he would realize, um, maybe I should stop eating these things. But I, it's my job as a dad to say, okay, you know, everything, you know, here's a few, but after your seventh bowl, we need to, we need to cut it off, okay? That's when dad's home with mom, it's like one bowl. But with dad, it's, so we can go up to seven, it's a holy number, um, you know, We'll just bet she's, she's coming to the second service. So um, we'll just keep it here. Uh, but as a dad, it's my job to say to my son, okay, no, that's, this is enough. For your health, for, for, and of course, we do this in much more serious situations too. Actually, you know, so-and-so, I don't think it's good if you're hanging out with these kids. I don't want you to see this movie or whatever. Oftentimes, love means saying no. Oftentimes, love is in the withholding. It's not in the giving. And I know that's hard for us to understand. I know that's not how we're raised. But oftentimes, we'll do the right thing for the wrong reasons because we don't want to say no. We're afraid. Here's another thing. We're afraid of, what if I say no in this relationship? What's going to be the result? Will this person still be my friend? How will, how will my um, family members react? How will my neighbor react? Whatever. Fear of consequences, fear of man. Um, Here's another one. We love being the person who people look to to fix a problem. Love of praise. Sometimes some of us love being Mr. or, Miss or Mrs. Fix-It. Know-it-all. All-around awesome person, right? There's a situation that needs to be fixed. Who do we call? We call this person because this person always knows what to do or this person always has the answers. And so we are quick to help out. We're quick to come to the aid in a situation because we know what's going to come with that, which is the accolades and the praise and the, wow, we're so glad that we have this amazing person
to help us in any and all situations. Sometimes a person needs to struggle through a situation themselves instead of having uh, another person come along and, and do the, solve the problem for them. There's a fourth thing too. Sometimes we do the right thing for the wrong reasons because being helpful or handy or knowledgeable or competent or fill in your adjective, fill in your description, it's how it's our identity. There are, there are some people who, who can't walk into a room without, um, without everybody knowing how much they know about a certain subject or about um, displaying competence in some level. You know, if I were to apply it to myself, I would say, um, you know, or any pastor. Can a pastor go into a room and, and, and hear somebody else talk about the Bible? Or does it always have to be that person to say, oh, I'm the one that supposedly is the expert here. But these things can become our identity. And we say, um, no, this is who I am. I'm the person who's great at this. I'm the person who knows everything about this. And so we do the right thing for the wrong reasons. I will say this. Uh, Doing the right things for the wrong reasons is still sinful. But let's not lose sight of the fact that it's still better than doing the wrong thing. Okay? Um, I would absolutely say to someone, if... If you look at your life and you say, I have a sinful pattern in my life, and the only thing that's keeping me from doing that sinful pattern is maybe fear of consequences, still don't do that sinful thing. Okay, don't do it. Don't say, well, my motives aren't pure, so I'm just going to do it now. No. Instead say, I'm glad that I have this restraint in my life. It's not the best restraint. I wish the restraint in my life was the love of God filling my heart. But you know what? If... If staying out of a jail cell is, is enough to keep someone from doing something sinful, then don't do that sinful thing. But rather, so it's not to say, it's, it's never an excuse for sin, but rather it's to say we're aiming for something higher. We're aiming for something higher than, than the fear of man or the, or, or the love of praise or an identity. We're aiming for a security in Christ to say, Jesus, is that's my identity. I don't always have to go into every room um, as an expert, I, don't, I have the ability to say no and, and be able to deal with p- potential relational repercussions from that because my identity is in Christ. And that's why I can strive to say, Lord, bring my heart and my actions into alignment. I want my motives to honor you. Nobody else can, you know, the thing about motives is nobody else generally can see them. Sometimes you know somebody really well, a spouse can see motives or other things like that. But generally speaking, our motives are hidden and only God sees them. And we say, Lord, I want what only you can see to be pleasing to you. We say, well, pastor, I can see how our actions are, um, can be motivated by the wrong reasons. I, that makes sense to me. But surely not giving. Surely altruism is something that is, is, is always motivated by pure love, right? I mean, if we're... If we're um, parting with our finances, um, what, what could possibly be selfish about that? And I read a book preparing for this series. The book is, is called Reclaiming Love by Ajit Fernando. He's a Youth for Christ worker. I highly recommend this author. He wrote a book called Reclaiming Love. The book is all about 1 Corinthians 13. So if you want to go deeper on 1 Corinthians 13, buy this book. He lists ways in which it is possible to give sacrificially without having genuine love. Here's just here's some reasons. Giving for merit. <clears throat> In other words, um, I'm going to give because 
I feel like that will merit God's love for me in some way. Uh, if I give back, God will love me. Giving out of a sense of duty, this is just what Christians do. Give, here, here's, here's one um, that's going a little deeper. Getting, uh, giving to avoid getting involved. Um, is it possible uh, that writing a check can sometimes be easier than getting our hands dirty? Yeah, that's possible. Giving when we should not give. And what he means by that is sometimes um, love is in the withholding. Sometimes um, struggle, it's just, like, it's just like with our kids. If we just you know, say, here's a huge allowance and, and for, for doing nothing, for having no chores or whatever. Sometimes we, we don't need to give. Sometimes God, God calls us to, to withhold in some situations. Here's another one. Giving without identifying with those we serve. In other words, here's a check for those people instead of really getting involved. And finally, I think one that we can all understand, giving for recognition. Um, hey, you know, the new, the new wing of this building is named after so-and-so. All of these things are ways in which it is possible to be altruistic and to not be motivated by sacrificial love. One thing I want to add. The text never says that, uh, and the Bible never says, that sacrificial giving and living is of no benefit to the recipients, okay? So again, we don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. We don't say, well, just because my giving may not be perfect doesn't mean that it doesn't accomplish any good. If you give a lot of money to charity, even if you do it for one of these six reasons, that can be, God can use that to be a great blessing to the recipient, Notice what Paul says. He says, I gain nothing, okay? So what he's saying is sacrificial giving and living is of no benefit whatsoever for the giver if it's not motivated by love. In other words, God can still use and he still does use our sacrificial giving and our living for his ends, but the scriptures say it's of no value for us, for us if it's not ultimately motivated out of love. To wrap up for today, leaving a legacy. When you look back on your life, how will you measure it? By what standards? You know, there's another another song in Hamilton where uh, Hamilton says this, the world's gonna know my name. In New York, you can be a, a new man. There's a million things I haven't done. Just you wait. Just you wait. And in so many ways, that is the ethos of the world we live in. Just you wait. If I just catch my break, if I just work hard to achieve my goals, then I will, I will gain what I want. I will, I will be successful. And that will be my legacy. And I'll say this. The desire to leave a legacy is a good desire. I hope you have that. I hope you do think beyond your 70 or 80 years that God willing you'll have upon this earth, that I'll have upon this earth. The desire to leave a legacy is a good thing. We should want to do that. We should want to leave a legacy for our children of faith that we pray that God will continue on for generations and for generations and for generations. And this morning we're going to see some new kids come into membership, and that's that legacy, that's that covenant legacy extending to the next generation. But by what standard are we measuring it? What kind of legacy are we aiming for? 
our legacy is, our desire should be to live our lives for the glory of God and to leave a legacy that ultimately brings him honor and glory and isn't about simply our names. So how do we gain something that will last? Paul says this, listen to the verse. He says, if I give all I possess to the poor and I give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but I do not have love, I gain nothing. So how do we gain something that will last? It's really quite simple. That which is done out of love will last forever. We're called to give out of love. Not under compulsion, not reluctantly or out of under compulsion for God loves a cheerful giver. That's 2 Corinthians 9, 7. We're called to serve out of love. 1 Peter 2, 12. Live such good lives among the pagans that they would... Um, See your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Sacrifice out of love. Matthew 25, Jesus says, if you give a cup of water, if you clothe those who need clothing for the least of these, you've done it for me. Witness out of love. 2 Peter 3, 9 says, God desires that none should perish, but that all should come to eternal life. What's our desire? Our desire is to do the various things that, that we know we're called to do as Christians, but to say, Lord, make the motive of my heart, make the beat of my heart, your love filling me. The image I like to think of is a cup that overflows. You know what the gospel is? The gospel is God's pouring his love like a pitcher into a cup, and it's so overwhelming, it just overflows. And what is our love for other people? It's the overflow of the cup. It's the overflow of the love that God has poured into our own hearts. Now, let me just say this, keeping our balance. Our motives will never be 100% pure in this life all the time. we, We are people who, who are filled with sin. We're people who have mixed motives. And honestly, if, if you look at a lot of your actions, a lot of your choices, you'll, you'll find that, you know what? I think I did this 90% for Jesus and 10% for myself, right? Or maybe for some, sometimes for us, it's the opposite. I think I did this 90% for myself and 10% for Jesus. Or I did this 70% for Jesus and 30% to manipulate this, this situation how I wanted it. And so we can say, well, my motives are always going to be mixed. So what's the point? Life is all grace anyway, so I will just live how I want. We need to know this. Grace can be abused. And an abuse of grace is to take an attitude like that and to say, well, because my motives aren't 100% pure, because my motives are not uh, exactly where God wants them all the time, then I'm just going to live however I want. And this, the Bible won't allow us to do that. The Bible has this doctrine called sanctification and it says that once you become a Christian, life is all about God working in you by power of his Holy Spirit and us working together to bring our actions and our motives into alignment. We're saved by faith, but faith is never alone. We're saved by faith alone, but but faith is never alone. Please don't believe a gospel message which says grace is the liberty to do whatever we want. Because that's not the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is grace is the only thing that can save us. And then we strive the rest of our lives in synergy, in cooperation with the Holy Spirit to make our actions and our motives increasingly in alignment with one another so that we are pleasing to God. 
well, what if I lack love, pastor? How do I grow? Nothing profound here, but yet what we need to hear. The gospel has to captivate our hearts. We have to understand forgiveness on a deep enough level so that we can extend forgiveness to, to one another. It's like I said, if, if, if our love for each, for each other is like a cup overflowing, that you yourself have to be filled with that cup of God's love th- that we see in Christ, that we see in the gospel overflowing to us. You know, Alexander Hamilton left a legacy that is, as I mentioned earlier, as celebrated now as it has ever been. But there's someone else who left a legacy too that we see in the scriptures, and and we see this in, in Luke 7. In Luke 7, we're told that Jesus uh, is at the house of a Pharisee, somebody who looks really, really good, all right? They look better on the outside than they are on the inside. And the text says a sinful woman, which is often biblical code for prostitute, um, comes up to him. And the text says that she is weeping. She's weeping. And the text says that she uh, anoints Jesus feet with her tears and with ointment. And guess what happens? Pharisees start grumbling. Do you know who she is? Look, look what this woman is doing. And, you know, Jesus, he, I don't know if he literally hears them or if he exercises his ability as the son of God, but he knows what they're saying. Maybe he just, was just so good at reading people because he knew the human heart so well that he's, he knows exactly what they're saying. Jesus says this about this woman. She doesn't have a Broadway musical yet. Maybe she'll get one one day. But she left a legacy. Jesus says this, Therefore I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, as her great love has shown. Whoever has been forgiven little loves little. What's the implication? Whoever has been forgiven much loves much. Do you want to love much? Do you want to leave a legacy Do you want to gain something that will last? Then you need, first of all, to have your heart captivated through the power of the gospel. You need to understand forgiveness. And then what happens is our actions and our motives are brought into alignment and we serve and we love and we give and we witness out of love. And it's Jesus' love flowing through us. Let's pray. Father, we pray that in your great mercy, we would live a life of love. We need your help. Help us to sacrificially give and live out of love for you. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.